0: Welcome to GayRomance.Show, the MM Author Podcast, where we get to hear from the writers of our favorite LGBTQ fiction and their collaborators about the creative process behind these characters and their worlds. I'm your host, Slade James. It is Wednesday, September 26, 2019, as I record this introduction. This week I have an interview with author Lucy Lennox, recorded two months ago on July 26, 2019, right after her novel King Me was breaking some records on the Amazon charts. We talk about that book's success in the interview segment, which is coming up in just a few moments. Before I forget, I want to thank you in advance for sharing the show with friends and leaving a review on iTunes. Both of those are entirely free ways you can support the show that will have a huge positive impact. I also want to thank you for pledging your support on Patreon. It demonstrates that you're enjoying the show and you want it to continue. That's very encouraging to me. I'd love to give you a grateful shout out on a future episode. So to find out how you can become a patron and support my time in producing more of these episodes, please go to patreon.com slash Slade James. You probably know Lucy Lennox as the author of sweet and steamy gay romance novels. Her two most popular series, Maid Marion* and Forever Wild, both feature big families of gorgeous gay brothers who all have their own love stories. Lucy also co-authored the Twist of Fate series with Sloan Kennedy and a newer series called After Oscar with Molly Maddox. There are novellas and short stories and anthologies If you haven't read any of her books yet, you're in for a real treat because there's a lot to binge. All of her books can be read as part of their series or as standalones. If you're looking for the best book to start with, she recommends Borrowing Blue. Lucy has also recently started the Gay and MM Author Network group on Facebook and is hosting the Page MM Author Education event in spring of 2020 in Atlanta, Georgia. When I started reading Lucy's books, I couldn't put them down. If there was another one in the series available, that was my next book. And the whole time I was reading these page turners, I was thinking, what magic is this? Like, this writer is clearly some kind of sorceress. I am captivated, laughing, crying, giggling, staying up until all hours of the night reading these books. Honestly, I think some of my earliest nudges to do this podcast began with thoughts of wanting to pick Lucy's brain about her creative process. She's always been at the top of my interview list and ended up being the first person I actually recorded. I was thrilled by how approachable and open she was to talking to me about her craft and this genre, even before we got on the phone. On the next episode of this show with Lily Morton, Lily talks about the positive impact Lucy has made on her own career and how she championed her books, and I know there are tons of other authors who say the same. I've talked to a lot of writers who describe Lucy as being incredibly generous with her knowledge and experience. If she has the answer to a question, she's happy to share it. Just this morning, I had a message from her about a podcast guest recording service she'd used for another show that is so much less BS than Skype. And knowing what a headache Skype can be for guests, because we talked about it, she passed it along to me. She knew it would be helpful to me in producing my shows. Lucy's spirit of collaboration sets a great tone for the whole author community. Speaking of Skype... I don't think Lucy would mind my telling you the day we recorded her interview was totally testing Mercury retrograde in a big way. As someone who interviews a lot of astrologers, I knew we were kind of asking for it and I was cringing a little bit. Lucy's internet was out in her office, so she was recording from a random spot in her house. I think we might have gotten disconnected or had some Skype issues. She described herself as being a little frazzled on that day, but, you know, she showed up and she made the interview work for me, and I think the conversation is representative of who she is. Really down-to-earth, approachable, funny, smart, unpretentious writer, sharing her creative process with the rest of us. I felt like I was chatting on the phone with a friend who was giving me advice, and that's exactly what we want in a podcast interview like this. I hope you'll enjoy this chat with Lucy Lennox as much as I did.
1: It was the summer of 2016. I'd never read a gay romance novel before. I just didn't know that was a thing. And um, I was, I had gone through a big, I've always been a big reader, and I'd gone through this big uh, phase of reading Pride and Prejudice variations, which I love. Um, And I got to the point where I felt like I'd read all of them, And so I asked a friend of mine who I knew through the quilting community because I'm a quilter um, for recommendations because I knew she liked steamy romance novels. And I was like, oh, you know, maybe I'll move to contemporary romance novels. And she recommended um, several books. One was Boss Man by Vi Keeland, heterosexual romance. And I loved it. I loved the premise. It was really clever and funny. And when I read it, I thought, gosh, I wish I'd written this. It's just so clever and so funny and and, and just fun and steamy. And I just wish I'd written it. I, I don't know why I had that response to it, but I just loved it. Something about it just sparked an interest in me. The same person recommended Try by Ella Frank. And so I read Try and I loved it. I'd never read gay romance before, like I said, and I loved it. And so I gobbled up all the gay romance I could get my hands on. And I just read a ton. And I, I actually listened to a lot of audio too. And I listened to it on audio as well. Um, Serena Bowen, the, um, understatement of the year and him and us, the ice hockey. I don't know. I can't remember if us was out yet or not, but, um, I loved them. And so, that was like in July and my sister is an author. She's a young adult author and she has been publishing traditionally for over 10 years. So, uh, and I, my college degree, I have an English literature degree. And so it's not, you know, foreign to me. I did my high school, um, senior project on poetry and I've journaled a lot. So it's not like this is all brand new to me. I'm a Huge reader and everything. So, when I started getting sort of the bug to think, well, maybe I could write, I turned to my sister because she'd been doing it and I, you know, she and I are best friends. So, I've been hearing about it and I've been around the industry already for 10 years from her perspective. So, um, she and I met up at, at our dad's house and I just asked her a ton of questions and she really encouraged me to just try it. And she said, you know, the majority of authors don't publish their first book anyway. So, just write something you would want to read, and don't judge yourself, don't judge your words, just be indulgent. If you would want to read it, you know, others probably will too, so just write from your heart, and so I went home, and my kids started school that year on August 1st, and so I opened up a Word document and started writing, and I started with a male-female romance because I knew that own voices was a big deal, and I was really afraid of stepping on own voices, authors at the time. So even though I was reading gay romance, um, I still felt like my quote unquote place was to write straight romance. So that's what I started with. And I wrote a book and it just poured out of me. I wrote a book in a week. I don't, I look back on that and I think, "Ah, I would like to do that again. How did I do it? But I wrote a book in a week And then I went right into another one, and I wrote another one in a week. And, I mean, I was ignoring my family and writing around the clock, and I loved it. And, I mean, it helped that my kids were starting school, so they were exhausted. When they got home, they wanted their own space. And then they fell asleep early, you know, and that kind of thing. So, um, So that's how I got started, and that was August 2016. And it wasn't until October, so I'd written these two complete MF romances. My sister read them and liked them. And she actually sent one of them to a friend of hers who writes Regency romance MF, and um, and so she said, you know, what what does your sister like to read? And my sister said, well, she reads MM. She's like, well, then she should write MM if that's where her heart is and that's where her passion is. And because this author is a big deal name in the industry, and she also you know contributes to the Washington Post, you know about. And she's, you know, a member of RWA and everything. I sort of took that as permission because I know that own voices is very important to her as well. But when she said she should write gay romance, all of a sudden I was like, oh, really? Yeah, I could do that. So that weekend I opened up a new document and I thought, I'm just going to write one for fun. That doesn't mean I'm going to publish it. You know, I can worry about, you know, sort of the implications of it later, but I'm going to, I at least want to write it. And out came Borrowing Blue. And I loved it. I fell in love with it right away. I fell in love with the family. I fell in love with the series premise. Um, And again, I think, had I been thinking, oh, I'm writing something that I'm definitely going to publish, I wouldn't have done it the way I did. So I, w- I would have thought, it's not believable. There are all these gay brothers in one family. This is ridiculous. You know, I would have had all of this second guessing going on, but because I was writing it with the intent of it's just going to be me reading it. I was what my sister had advised. I was indulgent. You know, I wrote it the way I wanted to see it. And so when I finished it, all of a sudden I was like this, this is the direction I want to go in. This is what I want to publish. And so um, that was in October uh, of 2016. And so I had heard a rumor that there was something that authors referred to as Kindle Moss, which is basically when readers get Kindles and Amazon gift cards for Christmas. And there's this huge rush to buy ebooks, you know, right around Christmas, right after Christmas. And so I thought, I'm going to try and get as many titles out as I can and get some momentum going before sales die off, you know, after Christmas, I'm going to try and take advantage of Kindle Moss. So I literally wrote around the clock and a lot of people have speculated, looking back on it now, I totally get it. But a lot of people assumed that I did, um, that I held back, that I'd been writing for years and I sort of stockpiled books in an effort to rapid release them. And I didn't do that. I I started Borrowing Blue in October. I published it November 23rd. um, And I released Taming Teddy December 11th. And then I wanted so badly to get the third one out before Christmas. And that's when I um, got some outside help. I had a volunteer beta reader named Leslie who um, said, you know, oh, I love your books. I've just discovered you. Well, of course, she just discovered me because I had only... (laughs) popped on the scene. And she helped me, I put the book in Google Docs, and she and I worked on it together, like she would, you know, sort of editing and, you know, suggestions and parts that didn't work or whatever, just, you know, standard beta reading stuff. And then I would go behind her and revise and fix it. And then she'd go behind me and make any additional comments for cleaning up and stuff. And I still had an editor. But that That is what helped me get it out, and so that book came out on Christmas Eve. So now, all of a sudden, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, I had three releases. So that momentum really helped because all of a sudden, people were like, Who is this? All of a sudden, this new name, and there's three books out boom, boom, boom. Um, so when I so back to your original question about saving for. For my kids' college, that's the reason, you know, anybody can write. You can write a book anytime. And all of these authors who talk about, well, I write from the heart. I don't write for money. That's wonderful. Um, And I hope that you're giving away your books for free if you're not writing for money. But if you're not giving your books away for free, if you feel like the work that you're doing is valuable, um, and most readers feel like the work that authors do is valuable, then you're going to put your books up for sale. And so my thought in putting my books up for sale is um, I'm loving writing the books, but if I can make a few hundred dollars here and there to set aside, I have three children in high school and middle school to set aside for college, boy, that would be a big help. I had been a stay at home mom for years. And while I'd always sort of had these little side businesses going, um, I was, you know, I, I hadn't pulled in a full-time income in, in years. So, the very first month I published, I did way better than I expected. But then the second month, I had three books out, and they were pretty much all three of them were new releases. So all of a sudden, it just skyrocketed and shocked me. And so um, I look back on it now from a very different perspective, because at the time, I wasn't in the know, I wasn't in the community. I didn't have a Facebook. I had a personal Facebook account. I didn't have a reader Facebook account. I had never followed authors on Facebook. I had never interacted with authors on Facebook. I didn't know that was a thing that people did. To me, it was like, oh, I buy the book. I enjoy the book. Maybe I leave a review on Amazon. Maybe I catalog the fact that I read it on Goodreads, and that's it. I, you know, well, having said that, there are a few authors over the years that I've written an email to just to say, oh, my gosh, your book had an impact on me, and I just wanted to thank you for putting it out there in the world. Mm-hmm. I know I've done that a handful of times, but other than that, I didn't know that readers interacted with authors on a regular basis on social media. So the day that I published Borrowing Blue was also the day that I signed up for a Facebook account with my author name, and um, and all of a sudden, I was like, wow. You know, like there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on over here in this community that now I know so well that I had no idea. I had no idea there were author reader groups on Facebook. I didn't know there was marketing on Facebook for that kind of thing. Like it just was not, that wasn't something I was aware of. So, um, so that was a huge bonus for me getting this online community in addition to writing the books of my heart, being able to put them up there for sale and make some money on them. But also the the friendships, the other authors, the networking, the reader feedback, seeing readers enjoy new releases and really get into the world that you're building. Like, that's been amazing.
0: So do you think if you had planned and masterminded all of this in advance that you would have been so much more psyched out and in your own head and probably unable to pull all that off? Like, it kind of feels like... The fact that you just did it without thinking about it was the big blessing.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And so what happened after that Christmas, after I got those first three books out, is I took a breath and started doing really stupid things like reading reviews and looking on Goodreads to see what people were saying. And that is crushing. Um, It can be. It can be crushing. Um, when you are first writing your first book and you don't have any feedback yet, it's hard because you have no idea how well you're doing. But at the same time, the sky's the limit. But once you start getting feedback, and I don't just mean negative feedback, uh, positive feedback as well can be um, debilitating. And And I'll give you some examples of that in a second. But um, once I started getting that feedback, positive and negative, there were so many voices in my head that I spent the entire following year trying to talk myself out of listening to those voices. I spent time trying to learn how to become a better writer, which also can put those voices in your head because now you have industry professional voices in your head telling you the way you should structure your novel, telling you the pace you should be writing books at, telling you you know the type of editing you should be doing and all of these other things. And I remember being so hamstrung by it that my sister said, and and I've since seen it a million times online, that Stephen King wrote a book on writing. I think it's called On Writing. And Stephen King said, write with the door closed, edit with the door open. And so what he means is don't let anybody in. Don't listen to those voices when you're writing. When you're revising or editing, um, he probably said revising, not editing. But when you're revising, yes, think about your readers. Think about the market. Think about rules. That's fine. But when you're first getting the book out there, you're not going to get the book out there if you're putting it through these filters to wash it down. You're going to end up with this watered watered down, you know, version. And I, because I write humor, and people sometimes ask me, how do you write humor?, the, the advice that I give people about writing humor is a lot of what humor is, is having the guts to leave it on the page. Most of us can write something funny, but then we judge ourselves and think, well, that's not funny. That's stupid. That's corny. That's dorky. I'm going to delete that because everyone's going to think I'm an idiot. And so writing humor just means having the guts to leave it on the page. You already wrote it. I mean, a lot of us have already written it. But, um, and it's, so it's the same way. It's the same concept behind not letting that judgy voice dilute the words that you're putting on the page. And, yeah, absolutely. Had I known more going into it. But, you know, having said that, I did know a lot going into it. Because, like I said, you know, I'd been there with my sister. And I'd already learned so much about writing and about publishing and the industry through just being present for her career for the past 10 years before that. So so it's hard to say. But yeah, once you start getting judged, so I'll, I'll expand on even positive feedback. Um, so in those early days, and you mentioned Aunt Tilly earlier, but in those early days of writing the Maid Marian series, I got a lot of feedback about Aunt Tilly and the ladies. And they weren't intentional at all. Um, like Aunt Tilly, I put into Borrowing Blue only because I wanted one person in that crazy group to call Jeremy out on his bullshit. Okay, so you've got the ex who's trying to make Blue jealous with this new guy. And the ex is an asshole, and what's he even doing at that wedding? Well, he's at the wedding because he's family friends. And, you know, I was born and raised in the South. And in the South, your enemy comes to your wedding because they're longtime family friends. (laughs) And it would be (laughs) rude not to invite them.
0: Exactly. But, um...
1: So, cause I, you know, a lot of reviews, well, he would have never been invited to that wedding. Oh yes, he would have, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, so he's there and he's an asshole and I wanted somebody without a filter. And so I thought who would not have a filter and it's, you know, the person who's had a full life and has learned not to give a shit about what other people think anymore. And so that's where aunt Tilly came from. And then I, you know, sort of gave her a crazy crew, but Um, But in those early days, I had reviewers who loved Aunt Tilly and the ladies. They wanted to see more, 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 more. And if a book didn't have enough Aunt Tilly, I would get dinged for not having enough of the old ladies. But then, similarly, I had people who hated Aunt Tilly and the ladies. They thought they were over the top and unrealistic and ridiculous. And if I could just write a book without the old ladies, that would be fantastic. And so... So one of the early lessons that I had to learn, and I'm still learning it. I mean, this is not something that just gets fixed ever, is that you are never going to please every reader and you are never going to put out a book that only has wonderful glowing reviews. Um, and so you can make one stylistic choice that enlivens a reader and makes them think this is the best book ever. And the exact same stylistic choice pisses a reader off and makes them never want to read you again. And so you have to decide, am I going to take out this decision completely? In which case we go back to the fact that you, you're now watering down your story from one of the things that makes people love it, so you sort of have to decide which camp am I on. And I could have, you know, I could be in the camp that's like, "You know what? You're right. I don't like the old ladies. I'm not going to write them anymore." And and go towards that camp and disappoint, you know, the readers who love them. Or you can go towards the camp of, you know, or you can try and split the difference, whatever. But so an example of where even positive feedback can be debilitating is when people say um when people write a review that says Lucy Lennox is a one-click author for me. Every book she writes keeps getting better and better. Mm. That is really hard. (laughs) That is a really high bar. So recently I released Doc and Grandpa's story, Wild Love, the one that's set in Vietnam, And I put off writing that book for so long because the expectations were so high. And people would say things in my reader group like, oh, I know she's going to, yes, it's really tough. It must be really tough to write the book now that all of us have such high expectations, but I know she's going to exceed all of our expectations. (laughs) And like, I love that because that shows such confidence in me and it's so flattering and that's wonderful. But like, you can't always surpass expectations because- you just can't. I look back at some of these authors who've written these amazing books right out of the gate. Um, what's one of them? Um, oh gosh, Eat, Pray, Love was that Elizabeth Gilbert, I yeah. think. And she was interviewed after that a lot about what's next, and she she would say like, "There's nothing I can write that's going to be." okay with my readers and I think you know like I think Kristen uh, not Kristen Stewart she played but um, help me Twilight help me who wrote Twilight Stephanie Meyer
0: Stephanie Meyer yeah
1: Stephanie Meyer okay so when she wrote Twilight she wrote an amazing science fiction but I'm not not a big Twilight fan honestly I just read the first one and I it wasn't really my thing but she wrote an amazing sci-fi book called The Host
0: I love that book
1: I loved it my husband loved it we loved it But it wasn't Twilight. Do you know how many of her readers like hated on that book because it wasn't Twilight? Well, of course it wasn't Twilight. So, so that's sort of an example of. And I know I sort of talk around in circles and interrupt myself, but, but there is such a thing as getting this wonderful feedback by massive super fans, and it being like, you know, like I said, debilitating because. You know, like after I wrote Wild Love with Doc and Grandpa and the reviews were amazing and I was so like humbled and flattered by the reaction to that book, but I also thought, shit. What do, what do I do now? Like there's no way I can top that. And I had such success with Borrowing Blue out of the gate. I had the same thought back then. Thank goodness I didn't stop and look at it for several months until I had another couple of books out, but same thing. That remains my top-selling book, Borrowing Blue. And when your first book remains your most popular one, it's very difficult because you know you sort of set the bar high with your readers and they think, she writes these great books. I know the next one's going to be awesome. And you just want to say, they can't always be awesome. They can't always be the best. I mean, they can't always be awesome, I guess. But they can't always be better than the last. Like, that's, that's just a really high bar.
0: Yes. Well, there's a consistency I think across the series that would have made me think that you had written them all and withheld them, so that you could kind of just airbrush everything and you know homogenize it. Because especially with the Made Marian series, it it really felt like it was um, there was a certain level of expectation for me that was always met, um, and it it made me think. Did she like sit down for six months and just plot all this stuff out? So it's a real revelation to hear you say how intuitively and kind of uh, as a pantser you actually wrote this stuff.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I was going I was going to laugh when you said plot. I wish I plotted. I really wish I plotted. Um, but so you still I, a pantser all I'm the still time? A pantser. Yeah. So. Um, so, it's, so back to Maid Marian, the first three books of Maid Marian, and I will never do this again, never say never, but I will never do this again, take place at the same freaking time. And I did not plan it like that. But when you write book one and you drop a few hints of things going on with side characters, and then you go to write that side character story, like Jude, okay, so in Mm -hmm. Borrowing Blue, we see Jude, he's exhausted, he has a bodyguard with him, you get a little tingling of maybe something's going on between the two of them, but you don't know, and then I want to go to write Jude's story, book three, and I have to cover that time to explain why was he downtrodden during that visit, and so I backed that story up to make that happen, but now I have to match up all of the events and all of the timing, and I can't have them get together in their own time, because that might not work with when they come back and see Blue again, or whatever, I can't remember now. Mm-hmm. But that was really difficult, and it was three of them. It was Teddy, mm-hmm. it was Blue, Teddy, and Jude, all take place at the same time. So that that was. So I had to reverse engineer it after the fact, which was not easy, Um now, having said that, do am I still a complete pantser? So the way it works now is I write about two-thirds to three-quarters of the book. And then all of a sudden I know what I'm doing. And so I write in Scrivener, and so I have the chapters in a bar in a column to the left, and I put my own little chapter names on them. Um, that indicate what happens in that chapter. So it makes it really easy for me to navigate and click back to, you know, the scene with the bicycle in it or whatever. I might call that the scene with the bicycle in it or the first time they have sex. I usually, you know, name it that so that I know where that first sex scene is so that I can go back to it because it's usually, you know, a, a pretty big deal moment. And so when I get two thirds to three quarters of the way through a book now, I can see it. I can see what needs to happen because I know what the HEA is and I know what the big gesture is at the end usually. And so to get from you know where I am partway through the book to the end, I start to I get to a point where now I know the chapters that are probably that probably need to happen to get us there. And so what I'll do is I'll go title up those blank chapters with what I think needs to happen in each. Now, I don't necessarily end up writing it that way, but it gives me a guideline for what, for the direction it's probably going to take for the rest of the book. That's the closest I come to plotting Um, with my solos. Now, when I collaborate, it's different just by virtue, you know, of the nature of collaboration. um, It's while I do still pants a little bit with collaboration, I'm not a little bit, a lot bit, And both of the authors so far, my sister and Sloane Kennedy, who I collaborate with, um, are open to this. They both agree with me that sometimes, you know, if you are writing and your fingers take you off in a different unexpected direction, sometimes that's where the best stuff comes in. Mm -hmm. So they're both totally open to that. But when you're writing with another person, you know, you do talk talk through, like, what do we want to have happen in this book? I mean, it happens differently on different books. So sometimes with Sloane... We'll say, okay, this is the general plot, Um, but we're not really sure what happens in the book other than in general, you know, we want it to be about this. Um, And then what we do is we talk on the phone or over messenger and say, okay, so what's the first scene or what's the first chapter or the first scene uh, and who's going to write it? And so then we do that or we might talk through the first three. Like right now, the collaboration I'm writing with my sister, we've talked through the first three or four chapters, what's going to happen in them. So that we're sort of clear on what's happening now once once either one of us goes in there and actually write it it may take us in a completely different direction and that's why we don't plot the whole thing Mm -hmm. so
0: let me ask you something that i always wonder about especially with your books in particular there is this incredible rhythm with the back and forth between the uh, point of view characters, right? They're alternating first point of person point of view, and it often happens within the same event that there will be multiple head switches. You know, like, and I always wonder: Do you have like a word count timer that goes off that you're like, okay, that person's talked for eight thousand words. <laughs> Let's just switch yeah. to the other guy. Tell me about how you do that because it seems really effortless when you're reading it but i have tried it and i find it very challenging
1: it is very challenging and that is one of the things i feel like i'm better at now than i used to be in the beginning um so i yes i do usually have a a chapter target um in general so in general my chapters are anywhere from 1500 words to 3400 words in general um I try not to have them as short as 1,500 words. So like my ideal chapter would be more like 2,200, 2,400 words. If I'm getting to the point where one chapter is like pushing up on 4,000 words, it's time for a switch. Not everybody feels the same way. Like when I write with my sister, she's like, why? If if you're feeling comfortable and the words are coming naturally, why why have this sort of artificial measure? Mm-hmm. But But I just, that's, how I do it. I I I do have a, a general sense of length. Now, having said that, I also, as a reader, want to know what the other character is thinking about what's going on. I don't just want to see an event from one person's point of view. And some some events or some scenes are better told from one person's point of view than the other. Mm-hmm. Um some some have to be told to from a certain person's point of view because the other character's not in the scene, right? Mm -hmm. And so because of that, there is some wrangling you have to do to make sure that you're in the right person's point of view when it comes time for that scene. And there have been many times where I've been messed up because I get to the point where it's quote unquote time to switch point of view. But the next scene in my head is one where that character's not there. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I usually wrangle it to work the way I want it to work. Um, but again, like I recognize that I don't know why I do that. Some authors don't. And some authors, even in a dual alternating POV, some authors will have two, you know, chapter one is Jack's point of view. Chapter two is also Jack's point of view. I never do that ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know why. Uh, now, the other thing that popped into my head when you asked that, I do try to make sure that sex scenes in the book we get at least one in each POV, even if it's the same episode of sex, you know, like even if it's the same night, I want to see it from both of their points of view. I can't imagine getting through. I mean, obviously there are exceptions. If it's a single point of view book, then it's a single point of view book. But if it's a dual point of view book and you get to the end and you realize, you know, I never knew what it was like for Jack when they were having sex, what his reactions were, what he thought, how he felt, you know, I want to see them both. Um, and it's not just sex scenes. It's emotional scenes, uh, happy ever after scenes. I mean, there've even been times where I do two epilogues, one from each point of view, because I want to see them both experience what that HEA feels like.
0: Before we pass up the opportunity to talk about writing the sex scenes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) okay. So I always wonder, I mean, as a gay man, um, You women are doing an incredible job from my perspective of writing this gay sex. So, you know, tell me about where that's coming from. Are you watching movies? Are you just talking to your gay friends? Is it all in your imagination? How do you write these sex scenes?
1: Uh, I think that's a really good question. It's a really common question that a lot of people wonder that. Um, For me, I always joke when I get asked this question. Like, I've been having sex with men for decades. So, (laughs) I know very well the, the male body you know no I don't have a male body but I know it very well and I sleep with it every night um, and and I've had a lot of not. A, I mean I shouldn't say that but I've been married but I've had a lot of sex with men mostly one man in, in recent memory but you know so in other words I you know and women can have anal sex because that's another question that gets asked sure. a lot how do you know what it's like to have anal sex oh, I'm please. like you know you men aren't the only people who have anal sex right thank you um, so so that's a big one um that that I I hope readers can like stop for a minute and step back and and realize that a lot of their questions um are just sort of they don't realize that women can have a lot of these experiences even though they're not gay men. Um that's that's one thing. And um and the other thing is you can, the, and this is another answer I give a lot um, to this question, but, but, you know, J.K. Rowling has, has never turned into a creature or actually, you know, been successful at casting a magic spell. But she can write about it because, number one, her imagination, but number two, she's uh, presumably read a million other books that have done it. Um, this is the same way I can write about stained glass in Felix and the Prince, Mm-hmm. You research it, mm-hmm. and so so yes, I do absolutely research it. I ha- I had never seen gay porn in my life before I started writing gay sex, and now I've seen plenty <laughs> of. Gay porn. Um, and also, in general, being in the community online um, has been, first of all, it's it's had a massive positive imp- impact on my own sex life um, because the community that we're in, and 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 more specifically, gay men are way more, and I'm generalizing here, forgive me, are way more sex positive mm-hmm. than my own personal upbringing. I was born and raised in South Carolina, um, and I went to an Episcopalian private school, and I went to, you know, Episcopalian church every Sunday, and um, and I had a very white bread. Um, not, you know, not, my family wasn't, evangelical Christian or Christian conservative, but it still was very, I still grew up very sheltered and very heteronormative. And, um, you know, there weren't a lot of people of color in my world growing up. There weren't a lot of people who were different in any way, differently abled, um, different sexual identification, different sexuality. And so a lot of it, not just the sex part, but a lot of broadening my horizons has been something that I've had to seek out, you know, and and realize my own ignorance um, and self-educate. Like you said, you know, be a little bit more open with my gay friends and asking questions. Because for a long time, you know, I was very much a tiptoeer, you know, and so I wouldn't want to offend my gay friends by asking them questions when It's not their job to educate me on what it's like to be gay or what, you know, any of any various long list of questions that I may have. uh, It's not their responsibility to help me figure out how to be a more open minded, well educated, well informed person in the world. Um, So it's been very beneficial to me personally, not just as an author, but personally to be in a community of people who are so much more open and brave and outgoing about gender identity, um, sexuality and, and not even just dealing with that, just, you know, what it's like to be a person of color in the world, what it's like to be, um, somebody who lives in a different part of the world than the U S because the U S is so nationalist. And so I know that I've kind of gone off on a tangent there, but, but back to the sex part. Um, so yeah, I would say it's a combination of my own experience, uh, my imagination, books that I've read, you know, other gay romance novels that I've read. Which I, I try to be more careful of that though, um, because I have also read a lot of gay romance novels that, in my opinion, get gay sex wrong. Um, like for a long time, um, I would notice that you know when authors talk about like anal sex, for example, as Painful, super painful. It's always painful. It's always painful, mm-hmm. and that really bothers me because it's not always painful, and it's not painful for everybody. And so, um, so I try to be very mindful of not taking my knowledge of something from a fictional oh, world, right. in a fictional universe. Um, and I hope nobody is is doing that w- with mine either. Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, there's so much information. People are, you know, there's there's all kinds of information on the internet. Now there's YouTube videos on douching and there's, you know, blog posts on, uh, you know, what it's like to have grinder hookups multiple times a day, every day. And, and what you have to do is just be super mindful of the fact that there is no one truth. Mm-hmm. You know, there is no one gay man's story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that has also helped me on the flip side you know, if I get criticized for, well, that's not how gay men are, you know, and then I'll have a gay male reader say, well, that's how I am. Hmm. Um, and then the fact that, you know, another thing that I always like to talk about when the subject comes up is this is a romance novel. So my goal here is not to write about realistic sex, because in realistic sex, you know, there's all kinds of shit that happens that we don't <laughs> want to read about in a romance <laughs> novel, you know? <clears throat> and you know, I've been married for almost 20 years. So, uh, you know, my sex is very different (laughs) sometimes than the sex that you might want to read about in a romance novel. Um, And that's another thing that people need to, because, you know, sometimes you'll hear, well, how come that, you know, nobody ever talks about douching and nobody ever talks about this. And I'm like, you know, nobody ever talks about having diarrhea in a romance novel either. There's some things, you know, we don't often talk about flossing in a romance novel. There are just certain things that, and, and those are all judgment calls that every author has to make. Because some author may say, I would like for this to be more realistic. And that's a wonderful choice for them. And there may be certain titles that I decide to do that with for different reasons. But, you know, that's that's every every person's own, you know, every author's own choice. And every reader's choice as to which authors they feel like creates the world that they want to believe or that they want to spend time in.
0: I feel like you are starting to branch out in the types of books that you write, even within this genre. Um, obviously, Forever Wild was a historical novel. Um, and so that had to have a different process. I understand that King Me is a, a, a more of a thriller, correct? Um, yeah, it's
1: a heist novel.
0: Heist novel, yeah. And so are there other types of books like that that you're excited to write, like types of books that you haven't written yet?
1: Um, That's a good question. So one of the things that I – I love heist movies, and that's why I wanted to write a heist. Um, but I – because I'm not a plotter, <laughs> it's like I was talking to May Archer – and she's a plotter. So we all, I always ask her advice on plotting. I'm like, you know, this is a heist novel. Maybe I ought to have an idea of what happens in it before I start writing it. And so we get sort of partway through the conversation. She's like, wait, wait. Are you telling me that you've written a heist novel without plotting it ahead of time? <laughs> and I'm like, well, yeah, that's why I'm having this problem here at the end. You know, because certain things need to happen and I can envision the scene. But I didn't do whatever required, you know, whatever setup was supposed to get me here didn't happen. And now I have to go back and put it in and I don't know how to do that. Um, so it's a lot more, um, there are certain, so to answer your question, there are certain subgenres that I would like to try, but they don't necessarily speak to my strengths. So one of them is mystery. I love reading mysteries. Um, I love um, Jack Reacher novels. I love, um, longmire craig johnson's longmire series uh cj box does a similar uh game warden based mystery series set out west they're they're very and william kent kruger does one um set in minnesota or wisconsin but they're they're very uh outdoorsy lawmen mystery type series i would love to write those um
0: we're recording this at the end of july 2019 King Me came out a couple weeks ago, it had some major mile, milestone moments. So I know that for a hot second, as you said, it was number one across all of romance. Talk to me about how how high did it go in the overall Kindle store?
1: Um, I I know it got to 25. I can't remember if it got higher than that. Sloan and I had a book that got to 19. Um, so it's not my highest, but okay. it is... But I, I don't know of another gay romance. There, there may have been one, but I don't know of another gay romance that was ever number one in contemporary romance um, in the Kindle store. Um, so when I saw that, I flipped out. I mean, because, yes, it's very, very exciting for me. But as a reader, it's very exciting for gay romance. As yeah. a human being, it's very exciting to me for equality um, because, and and I feel like there's a lot of power in this genre and publishing in this genre, because I do feel like because a lot of the readers in this genre are heterosexual women, um, I feel like I'm a, I'm a pretty average. um, That's not the right way of saying it, but I think I'm a pretty standard representation of, um, of the majority of our, heterosexual female readers. And a lot of other women are probably like me and they don't know what they don't know and they're trying to change and they would like to have more exposure to different kinds of people in the world, but they grew up very sheltered like me. And so I feel like, you know, getting women to, obviously, you know, gay men reading gay romance is fantastic and that's a given, that's wonderful. But I think getting heterosexual women to cheer on to men getting together and falling in love can have a massive impact in our society. I hope maybe that's idealistic of me.
0: I see like when I'm in your readers community and, um, and reading the posts in there as a gay man, what I see are all those allies, the girls that were our friends in school. I see all the potential mothers Who're gonna raise gay sons differently? Yes, and 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 raise straight sons differently. Yes. So there is, you know, there's feminism and there's humanism, and that brings me to kind of more of a deep question. Um, You know, what do you hope to contribute to literature? What do you hope that your legacy is? If you are like Jane Austen, and 300 years from now, people are reading the Made Marian series. What do you hope that the impact is with your books?
1: You know, you you mentioned that um, earlier, and I can't remember if it was in our email or what, and I, the very first thing I thought of was the short-term impact. To me, it's the short-term impact that I would like to have. Based on what's going on politically in our world right now, I would like to do exactly what you just said. I would like to make... Different kinds of relationships, and, and not even. I mean, I write gay romance, so I'm. But that's not to say that's what I'm always going to write. Um, I I may end up writing lesbian romance. I may, you know, who knows? And I've written bisexual romance, but but if I can make somebody like I have a neighbor, um, a woman in my neighborhood who's who has been very politically conservative, very Christian, evangelical Christian, her, her upbringing, very small town Georgia, Southern and she read my book just cuz she's a friend of mine i was shocked that she did because she was homophobic straight up you know christian based homophobia and she read my book and she fell in love with it and this was 2 years ago she fell in love with it and she kept she begged me when's the next one coming out when's the next one coming out that's the effect i want to have i want to have her go to the voting polls or whatever you know the her the election on election day and vote differently because of it I want her to all of a sudden realize that you know people are people and love is love and like it's not it like I I it boggles my mind that people think that there's anything wrong with any two people or any three people or any 12 people being in love because like the more love we can put out there into the world the more wonderful our world is going to be like the idea that there's anything negative about straight up people loving each other makes me crazy. So that's my hope, my hope. My hope is that I can change people's opinions when they go to the polls because to me, that's how our world can actually be changed moving forward. And that's a much more short-term thing, to, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's needed now.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. And like you said, you know, and and that it will affect them as they're raising their children and that will affect them as they're standing up for somebody in a conversation. I hope it's my hope that it affects somebody when they hear a homophobic joke at a cocktail party that they're not just going to sort of laugh uncomfortably.
0: I uh, over the years, you know, with gay activism and, you know, you always feel that you're not being as active as you could be. Um, but, you know, never discount the power of, you know, I always think about those straight guys that I might be friends with who will tell me you're the first gay person that I've ever been friends with like this. And I think, you know what, that's life changing right there because they will treat other people differently it won't just be a word or a concept that they can divorce when they hear that word they'll think of me and they'll associate that with someone that they like and think is cool and so what you're talking about is you know changing hearts and minds one at a time and that is so much more personally powerful than necessarily something that people can see on a TV screen and, and block out and disconnect from you know
1: absolutely I agree
0: I love it. Oh my gosh, Lucy, I could talk to you all day, and I hope I will get to do this with you again. Make sure um, and tell everyone where they can go to find you online.
1: Uh, My favorite place to tell people to come find me is Lucy's Lair. It's the readers group on Facebook, Lucy's Lair. And um, it's the most fun ever. The readers in there are amazing, it's thousands of readers who are all coming together to share a passion for romance novels and gay romance novels in particular. Um, and it's just a super supportive and funny group. So that's the number one place, obviously my website, www.lucylenox.com and Amazon. You can search for my books. Most of my books are, um, in KU and what else I'm on? I'm everywhere. I'm on BookBub, Instagram, everywhere else, but, um, you can find links to all of that on my website.
0: And I will repeat all those links in the show notes for anyone that's listening so they can just click and go straight there. I love your readers group on, on Facebook. Lucy's Lair is a great place to hang out on Facebook. I find myself in there a lot.
1: <laughs> um, it is very fun. It's very fun. Every, and everybody's just very accepting and supportive and funny. And yeah, I love it. It's a good group.
0: Lucy, thank you so much for doing this with me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks again for listening to GayRomance.show, the MM Author Podcast. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever app you prefer. For show notes and links to the websites and books we mentioned, please go to GayRomance.show. You can also find me at SladeJames.com. And I'll talk to you later.